episode five of Talk on Tech with your hosts, Patrick Smith and Josh Joseph. We are your guides through all things information technology related, and we talk a little bit about Mount West Community Technical College as well. Today, this is actually uh, being recorded in what is our eighth week of school, so we have a couple of quick reminders here for our students. Being that this is the, the eighth week, this may be the end of your first eight weeks course, you need to be aware that Wednesday is going to mark the end of that particular eight weeks course. And if you have any you've signed up for, this is the second eight weeks, they're going to be starting March 1st, which is Thursday. Also, not too far down the road, March 16th, which will be a Friday, will be the last day to drop an individual course to make sure you don't get an F. You want to get a W instead of an F but also it has a dual purpose as being the last day that you can apply for May graduation. And then right after March 16th, the following Saturday, starts the official week of spring break. I cannot wait. So March 17th through 25th (laughs) will be our spring break week, and we'll have one glorious week (laughs) off. (laughs) I cannot wait till I get there. I love this place, but... After a while, you need a little small break. So those are our dates that are going to be helpful for our students. Before we get into our articles this week and our later uh, interview with Dr. Randall Jones about our GIS program and our management information systems course that he teaches, we have a couple small clarifications from last episode. Last episode, we talked about a lot of different articles, but one of the biggest talking points we had was on the used video games lockout. And um, as I was listening to it being posted the other day, it occurred to me that through the conversation between Josh and myself, I regularly said the word console uh, when I was actually thinking of computer. So just to clarify, when we talked about how many games on computers would regularly use serial numbers way before uh, Xbox 360s or the like ever had to, I was referring to computer-based games, not talking about consoles such as Nintendo's offerings or Sega's offerings or now Sony or Microsoft's offerings. So to give you one more example, I had mentioned that uh, Ubisoft was a company who was developing a game called Assassin's Creed II Revelations. And there was the possibility that they were making a PC version as well as an Xbox 360 version. Now, I ended up buying the Xbox 360 version, but for the PC people, the computer people, there was the possibility that Ubisoft was going to require them to go online through the Internet each and every time they were going to play their game to make sure their game was still a valid version. So, forgive me for saying console all the time when I actually met (laughs) computer. I think it will probably make a lot more sense in that context. The other clarification uh, is there was a lot of numbers that got rattled off when we started talking about our certifications. When I was talking about the Microsoft certifications, uh, I mentioned a lot of different numbers going with them. As a quick little recap clarification, there's two main certifications people would strive for these days with Microsoft Server 2008 implementation. There's either the server administrator option or there's the server or the enterprise administrator option. For server administrator, you're required to pass the 7640 exam, which is Active Directory, 
the 642, which is network infrastructure. And finally, you're required to pass the 646, which is the actual server administrator pro test. Those are the three tests required for server admin. If they go the enterprise admin route instead, or decide to kind of bump it along with the normal one they have, they have to pass 640, that's a common one between the two, 642, network infrastructure, common between the two. They also have to pick up 643, which is application infrastructure. They also have to have a client of some sort. That's either going to be Vista, which is the 620 test, or that's going to be Windows 7, which is the 680 exam. At that point, they also have to take the 647 exam, which is Enterprise Administrator. I think when I was talking about that the other day, I think I might have screwed up a couple of my numbers, so I just wanted to throw this quick clarification out. I did mention that we teach an, uh, an exchange class, which uh, allows you to sit for the exam 7236, but that course and that exam is not required to complete either your server administrator or enterprise administrator. We put it in there as an extra option to help get your foot in the door and to have experience on something such as Exchange, which could be very, very valuable uh, and be a nice little one-up that you may have that would help you a lot better when you're applying for a job. So that being said, let's go ahead and talk about our articles we have today. And I'll go ahead and start off my articles that I have. Um, talking last week about certificates and certifications, I have a brand new certification that just got put on my radar today. I got an email from CompTIA. I was in the dark about this. But CompTIA has a brand new certification they offer called the CompTIA Advanced Security Practitioner, or the CASP. This is CompTIA's first advanced mastery style certification and so it's the very first I'm hearing about it and I'm going to be putting it on your all's radar but it, it does sound like it's a very comprehensive certification so let me tell you about it. <clears throat> they say here that this has no prerequisite and we'll be posting the link for this particular page on the Twitter account but it has no prerequisite per se. They haven't actually spelled out how you have to get to the, the port, the, the uh, pointing your skills that you would take this exam. But they do think having it to be a follow-up to Security Plus would be very, very helpful. If you go and you sit for this exam, you could see a maximum of, of 80 questions, and the test length would be 150 minutes long. They do not give you an actual score at the end. They simply tell you whether you passed or whether you failed. Now here's the real kicker, and this is something I think really tells you about the test. The recommended experience before you sit for this, they would expect someone to have 10 years in IT administration experience, including five of those years being on security. So this is definitely not an entry-level exam. This would be for something that wants for someone who wants to really prove they have a, a very high mastery and an expert mastery at um, IT as well as the security side of IT. Now I did do some looking up because it was relatively new. I was kind of curious as to what they would charge for such a test because previously I did go and sit for my Security Plus. When I sat for my Security Plus it was $259 back then. That was before uh, Jack had the CompTIA Academy here so I wasn't able to take advantage of the cheaper prices. 
So it was roughly 259 260 bucks. you might as well say. This exam, when I went out to look for a, a voucher you could buy from a company, $329. So this is definitely a test you want to make absolutely certain you are ready to go and sit for. And it seems like they're really wanting you to have a large amount of experience. So I would imagine this would be one of the tougher tests you would take uh, in your certification career. So 329 bucks is not not an amount that I want to throw away no. by accident on a test. No, maybe that's why they're saying that they want you to be that experienced in the field for that long. So you yeah. hopefully will know what's, you know, what's needed to be known. <laughs> well, I mean, my thing traditionally... Um, I always felt that CompTIA was a good stepladder to get uh-huh. you some of your first certifications. Yeah. I never, I mean, maybe it was um, bad on my part, but I never felt no. they were the, the top tier certifications that seemed to usually come with Cisco or Microsoft. Yeah, and oh, that's how I feel too, or that's and, how I thought. And it seems like here they may be trying to finally introduce themselves yeah. into that uh, into that higher arena. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Um, I got a article here about the um uh ipad 2 ipad 3 um information the rumor mill the rumor mill um this one's not necessarily a a rumor this actually is happening now Um, best buy over the weekend began advertising a 50 dollar price cut on the ipad 2 seemingly signaling that apple's ipad 3 is really on the way um they're good for any model from the 16 gigabyte to the all the way to the 64 gigabyte, including the Wi-Fi and 3G versions. Um, so usually your low end one that's priced at $500 is on sale for 450 roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, what they're saying is they're saying it's all going around March the 7th is roughly what the rumors are saying that is the um, announcement for the iPad 3. I've heard that date too. Now, what you know, more of the rumor bill stuff is they're saying that with the iPad 3, uh, possibly quad core processor, LTE support, and a uh, retina display, which the retina display was something that people thought they were going to have in the two, but then they're like, no, yeah, really. And and, you know, retina display just means more of like an HD screen, yeah, yeah, and I mean. I, I really can't. I, I don't. I don't have any issues with it right now. But I guess it's you know uh, easier on the eyes. I guess too. So um, there's all kinds of leaks out there on the internet, the pictures and things. So um, you I know. saw. I saw one. Um, it was probably not it, but it, it looked like a, a soap bar. Uh-huh. Like if you imagine getting a a thing of of Dial soap. Okay. The almost like what you think a ship would look like. The hull of a ship. Uh-huh. You know how it's like it's deeper in the middle. Yeah. And it's thinner on the end. Somebody had posted something on Gizmodo, which was oh, okay. a picture they thought, and that would probably fit in your hand pretty nicely. Yeah, you could cup it. Yeah, because they're talking about possibly there's you know rumors going around about it being the same size, being bigger, and then also being smaller. But you know who knows until that day of of what exactly it's going to be. I would say the Retina display is going to be there. I would say the faster processor are easily going to be there. And then you said that you've been seeing a lot about the four G. Support possibly. Yeah, you know, I could I could really care less about a better display. I mean, I'm very and, satisfied. Yeah, that's how I am. I, I mean, could care less about a faster processor because, um, I mean, for what the device is supposed to do, it's not like I'm carrying around a desktop. So it does a good job for what I need to do. Oh, yeah. What I really want is I really want it to support 4G. 
And in our area, we don't have 4G everywhere, so having something that will kick down to 3G if need be. I mean, the one thing, and I, I can't guarantee that even 4G will give us this, I get really ticked when I go online and I want to download a, a podcast of some sort, uh, and it limits me and says, sorry, 20 gig files 20, are yeah. locked. So I want to make sure I can get around the 20 gig file limit. And so if 4G can do that, so be it. That's that's the only thing I have on my wish list. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like the retina display, that kind of stuff. I'm like, you know, big deal. But um, so, but if you are interested in the iPad 3, they are saying if you're willing to to um, get rid of your iPad 2 to sell it now for top dollar or uh, the most money you're going to be able to get out of it because as soon as that announcement announcement's made, the price is already going to drop on how much it's actually worth. I mean, you're obviously, you know, Best Buy's already dropping their prices, right? But for a used iPad two, it's like it's like a car. Yeah, the exactly. second they introduced the new 2013 or 2014. Yep, and so they're saying get rid of them now if you if you want the new one. Um, Let's hope the announcement actually comes true though. Yeah, because it'll if, be if, wow. you, if you get rid of it. And they yeah. don't make a new one for like a year. Mm-hmm. Here you are without an iPad. Yeah, and I, I mean, along with this article, I've, I've been seeing some other stuff more with the rumor mill, but they were saying there were some prices that were possibly released, and it was showing a $70 increase on each version of the iPad. So the iPad 3, when it comes out, if it doesn't stay the same, they were showing a $70 increase per um, per model. You know, I didn't really... I didn't look at specifics of the iPad 1 when it came out because uh-huh. even though I am a, an Apple person all the way through, I am not an early adopter. Yeah. I've learned my lesson that no matter whether it's Microsoft or Apple, uh-huh. wait till version 2 or yeah. at least wait for Service Pack 1. Yeah. So I really started caring more when the iPad 2 came out. Mm-hmm. But I want to say that if there wasn't a price drop, at least they maintained the same price Yeah. between 1 and 2. So yeah. It, if there's a higher price to this one, um, maybe it's because what's built into it. Exactly. Maybe they're going to give us that's, a bit more. I think that's what it is. I think they're expecting more. And excuse me. Um, with the um, to be perfectly honest, I don't care if the price of it's more. Mm-hmm. What would get me more is um, if my monthly service charge for data, mm-hmm. because ultimately it's not the razor I care about; it's the razor blades. Yeah. Well. Exactly. Uh, that's you know, and they're talking. I mean, cell phone again. The cell phone bills. Um, are going up, increasing. They're just tacking on dollars, tacking on dollars, tacking on dollars. And well, you know, right now so. I, I luck out because when I got my iPad two, and it's through Verizon, I managed to get a hold of their one gig data plan, yep. which was twenty bucks. Mm-hmm. They don't have that plan anymore. No, nope. and I'm still paying. You twenty still bucks. A, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say you still got. The, well, that's like me with my um, iPhone. I had the iPhone 3GS. I skipped the 4, mm-hmm. got the 4S. I'll skip the 5 just because of when the contract and, you know, that kind of thing runs out. Right. Um, but I had it when it was the unlimited AT&T plan, and mm-hmm. I've just kept it. I don't think I ever have to worry about reaching that point as far as the uh, da- data limit mm-hmm. for, for the next price range. But um, just to be safe, I was like, I'm going to keep it. Well, mm-hmm. you know. I don't have the article pulled up here today, but mm-hmm. you mentioned that makes me think that um, I had read online where people have been taking AT and T to court. Yeah, AT and T had something put in to their to the paperwork that yep. basically said people could not have a class action lawsuit, so people could not come together. The only way you were going to be able to sue AT and T for their unlimited data plan issues for throttling was going to be if you did small claims court, and this one guy actually mm-hmm. sued them and he won. 
And um, the idea behind it was he had unlimited service. Yeah. He was illegally tethering his device, yeah. and AT&T took his unlimited service away when they found out he was doing I guess it was jailbroke. Okay. But then he complained, and he got his unlimited service back. He started noticing throttling, and the funny thing was he started noticing throttling less than five gigs of data a month. Yeah. I think I saw this article. And yeah. he was getting throttled around three gigs and wow. so what the court actually ruled was if you say it's unlimited data, then yeah. you should actually practice what you preach, let alone the fact that the very first tier of data you could buy that was actually a number was five. Yeah. And so he was saying, why are they throttling me at three when I'm actually paying more than what someone who wanted five gigs would be paying? Yeah. Well, is that the one where he won like 800 and some dollars mm-hmm. and each month they're just ta- they're paying it back through his bill, they're paying yeah. off his bill he or whatever? He didn't win a lot of money. Yeah, he wouldn't. But it was the idea, and that's the other thing too, like all these individual peoples would have to go ahead and mount their own defense. If you do small claims court, you are representing yourself. Yeah. So you're going to have to represent yourself in front of a different judge than somebody else. And you're going to be able to articulate your problem, and your problem may be different than his problem. But ultimately, it does prove that at least somebody um, got through to AT&T based on their throttling ways. Because if you buy an unlimited plan and all you use is 3 gigs, I don't use that much data, but come on. 3 gigs, if the smallest tiered plan they're selling is 5, and you start throttling at 3, that makes no sense to me. No. no. So, okay, so my next set of articles is actually two going together. But, uh, Josh, are you familiar with something in the browser world called Do Not Track? I've heard of it. You've heard of it? I don't know okay. much about it, but I've heard okay. of it. Do Not Track is the idea that um, inside of your browser, you're supposed to turn on this ability, which will basically send out to websites and say you don't want to be tracked. So it goes ahead and uses the URL to go ahead and send the requests and responses out to a website. And basically in your header, say, do not track me, do not keep cookies about me, those type of things. Well, I I suppose it's newsworthy now to point out IE9 and Firefox had already supported this do not track ability. Um, And actually Firefox 4 had done it for for, uh, Mozilla and IE9 for Windows. They'd done that back in March 2011. Safari had followed suit. Um, Apple had done that with the new version of Lion. 5.1 was Safari's version that supported it. The only real industry holdout at this point was Google with Chrome. Mm -hmm. And so now Google has agreed to go ahead and support Do Not Track in its browser. Now, what exactly does it do? Well, I said it sends a, a piece of information, sends a request to a website to go ahead and say, Please don't keep track of where I'm going. Don't use cookies to go ahead and supply advertisers with information for me. For example, if I was just previously at a website for Netflix and I have a cookie on my machine for it, please don't look at the cookies that I have on my machine to then try to tailor your next ad to Blockbuster or Netflix or something along those lines. That's what it's supposed to mean. But what have websites actually agreed to do? Well, that's kind of where we have a more of a gray area because at this point, some websites have said, yeah, yeah, we'll support it, but ultimately it's not like they have a contract that says we will stop doing this particular act, this particular act, and this particular act. When you say do not track, it's so vague, yeah. you don't really know what's being done. 
So a lot of privacy groups want to see there be a more specific implementation. So what I feel about these two ads or these two uh, stories overall is at this point for me, it seems much ado about nothing because Google is supporting something that's so vague at this point you have to rely on the website you go to to actually follow through with it just because your browser says it won't do it. I mean, for example, our browsers have private browsing on them now, uh -huh. and so your browser won't save your own history. I think that's at least a bit more, in my opinion, secure or noteworthy about not keeping a history or cookies on your machine yeah. than this do not track because you're relying on a third party, some website you go to, to say on the honor system, I won't go ahead and utilize this. Yeah. So it's you just sending a signal saying, don't, don't uh, mess with me at all. And maybe eventually they'll get something uh, going ahead and doing it. I mean, the FTC is going to eventually start enforcing the do not track ability. But right now they need to have more standards that specify how it's going to be used. And so in later browsers, we'll maybe have that ability come in. But it was somewhat newsworthy this last week that Google committed to putting it in there. And the biggest problem there is there's still a lot of unanswered questions because Google hasn't said when they'll put it in. They've just said that they will put it inside of there. So now we just need to get buy-in on all the websites out there, which I think is a bit of a joke because you're asking a website to go ahead and not track you and not sell your data or your browsing habits to advertisers, mm -hmm. which is actually the way they're staying it, afloat. Yeah, yeah. That's so how they're it, making their money. It kind of seems to be to be a, a conflict of interest for the websites, but I guess we'll see eventually how that shakes out with this uh, do not track ability. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting. Um, <clears throat> I've got one here about the. Um, it's kind of a follow up with the uh, Facebook IPO that we talked mm -hmm. about a few episodes ago. Yeah, about how no ordinary um, person could buy it. Yeah, about how. Yeah, about only uh, rich folks are going to be able to buy it and become even more rich, uh, supposedly, if mm -hmm. it all goes as planned. Um, there's an article out today uh, talking about when it goes public later this year that. Because of how the um, it's you know public public uh, profit coming in, mm -hmm. um, it could boast a two point four five billion dollar amount into the state of California w over the next five years, and they're in a a multi billion dollar deficit right now. Yeah, they've been having a little bit of trouble recently. Yeah, um, not not counting how much their gas and things are out there. Right, um, but. Uh, if all goes as planned, mm -hmm. they're planning on estimating at $2.45 uh, billion going back into the state. So that could help with their deficit as long as they can keep it from, keep their current losses, mm -hmm. you know, from going well, down even farther. We, we actually got to drive, we were on a on a bus, but yep. we got to drive by the Facebook offices yep. out there in Palo Alto. Uh, we were out for a conference in San Francisco last year. So yep. I would say the reason they're going to be getting that money is because if uh, Facebook suddenly becomes flush with cash, mm -hmm. well, there's B&O taxes. Yep. And so because the business is in California, guess who's going to be reaping the rewards from that? The local government. So that's quite possible. Yeah. Um, maybe that'll help them a little bit with their their alien ability that they yeah. have. Well, and they say, saying if, you know, like I said, if, if we're assuming this all goes good, and if it does, they're saying um, they could see as much as $1.5 billion 
in the 2013 fiscal year, which starts in June and ends in the next June. So if that's the case, it could actually be more than $2.5 billion. Again, if, if all goes as planned with, with how they think they're going to be able to um, make that much money with the IPOs. Okay. So, cool. A little follow-up there. Well, I also have a bit of a follow-up for us here. Uh, we previously talked about Google's policy changes that are coming up. I think that was maybe even the first episode that we had. We talked about the fact that Google had said they had acquired all these different companies, such as Yahoo and Blogger or Blogspot.com, as it's called, um, all these different companies. They wanted to go ahead and take all those security policies and the privacy policies and put them under one giant umbrella. And that's why they said they were changing all their privacy policies effective March 2nd or March 1st. March 1st, I March believe. 1st. Yeah. Well, there's a company or a, um, an institution called the Center for Digital Democracy who has filed a, an order trying to stop them from this with the Federal Trade Commission. And they're trying to say that Google needs to be honest with end users, that they are not being honest that they don't want to do this to go ahead and try to bring everything under one umbrella, as they stated, but instead they designed this particular policy to fuel competition with Facebook. Oh, wow. I, know, I mean, I know previously we talked about how you can advertise on Facebook, yeah. yeah, and there's so much data there that users just put on. Yeah. Like, you can go ahead and advertise to 16-year-olds who are male, who live in a certain town based exactly. on a zip code, Okay. and Google wants to get in on that too. I Google see. collects a lot of information about yeah, people and their viewing habits. They want to get in on that because that's a $200 billion business yep. that they could go ahead and grow if they could go ahead and do this. So this company or this organization is very, very um, scared about what Google's going to be doing with this. So they filed with the Federal Trade Commission an injunction trying to stop this as well as asking for Google to be fined, penalized, and go ahead and find remedies to, to get around this. Oh, Maybe wow. to even allow people to opt out oh, of the new policy. That'll be interesting. Now, on top of that, there's a second article we had that kind of dovetails into that, which is in 36 states here in the U.S., there are attorney generals in 36 states, as a majority of our states, obviously, who are now raising concerns about the uh, impending changes to Google's privacy policy. I guess they just finally woke up oh, and got on board because this is from February 27th. And oh, wow. We were talking about that weeks ago at this point. But on the 22nd, they wrote a letter that was signed by the 36 attorney generals in question, and they were expressing concerns on behalf of consumers. But also, I think they were also playing to their own interests because there are many, many states federal, state, and local governments who have transitioned to Google Apps for governments. And now they're a little bit worried because they have all of these um, departments uh -huh. who are relying on Google's apps, Google's uh, docs, you know, yeah. all, all the spreadsheets, all that stuff that's put in there. And now they're worried about what type of privacy policies they're going to have to worry about. Because when those things get changed... Now you have government documents who may fall under different privacy settings, and you may have very confidential documents that are out there in the government that need to keep those privacy settings. So, yeah, yeah. I think they're being a little self-serving. They are trying to make sure that Google's new policy 
uh, gets fixed because they feel it's in, more invasive than in the past and that consumers should also have the option to opt out. Uh-huh. But they also feel that the government should have the option to opt out yeah. because if government's using all this stuff and Google doesn't change their ways, then there's going to be millions of tax dollars that have to be spent to go ahead and put back different platforms in place. Okay. Because I'm sure that the government loved the idea that Google was providing all these free services exactly. for them. No tax money needed to be done. But as as the old saying goes, nothing in life is free. There, <laughs> there's always some little catch in the background that goes ahead and makes yep. there be something. Because those people don't provide things for free. they got to get something out of it as well. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. I have one um, one more small article here. Let me okay. Let me find it. Um, this was actually posted a couple of days ago, but um, Chinese authorities, there's a lot going on in China right now with just Apple and technology and all this, you know, oh, yeah. suing, non-suing, all this stuff. Well, something that I find kind of uh, funny, apparently there were some iPhone-branded gas gas stoves that were seized by Chinese authorities. Um, iPhone branded? iPhone branded. Basically, it looks like um, a hot plate, a little bit bigger than a hot plate, mm-hmm. with um, one knob on the front. There's some um, some writing there in, in Chinese, but then there is a Apple logo mm-hmm. with iPhone next to it that looks like the Apple iPhone logo. And... Um, can I play my apps while I cook my food? <laughs> I, I don't know what they were thinking. Um, uh, 681 of these baffling branded gas stoves were seized by police in Wuhan, each bearing the legend Apple China Limited. Uh, apparently the hmm. units did not come with flame-out protection and only ran iOS 4.1. <laughs> So yeah, they weren't really running that, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they nice just little um, jab there of the uh, the journalists. Yeah, um, so well, I mean, I don't even you, know. You, you you see all kinds of uh, funny products that get put yeah. out of, of China. The Jay Leno, I think, on the Tonight Show always had like a a thing where you would send in these products, and it would just be the translation is not there. But there, you see that supposedly Apple is now making stoves. That's a whole other division that I knew. I mean, I know they're really good about keeping the rumor mill tight-lipped, but yep. um, I wanted to know that they were putting out uh, kitchen appliances. Yeah. That was well, unbeknownst to me. Just not too long, what, a couple months ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's been a little bit more than a couple months ago, closer to the summer, I guess, mm-hmm. um, was they had that fake Apple store that popped up, looked like an Apple store. Mm-hmm. Um I, d- people, I didn't even hear about that. Yeah, people dressed like Apple employees, and it was all... Well, they didn't even know they weren't working for Apple. Yeah, they didn't. They were duped, too. The whole um, hmm. the whole situation was... That was actually really thought out. Um, and Apple was like, wait a second, we don't have a store over there. So, um, wow. I thought that was pretty funny. So Yeah, that is very interesting. Better include that. I have, uh, have one more story here for you that, by the title, sounds like uh, it's going to be Armageddon for the Internet, but... It's not nearly as bad as it sounds. The title is, FBI Will Shut Down the Internet on March 8th. So what this is really about is it kind of comes back to the foundational statement that the Internet only works easily for end users if a DNS infrastructure is there. When you drive by signs on the highway and you see billboards, they don't have people's IP addresses posted up there. They say, go to... um, 
go to Don Hall Chevrolet or go to this GMC website or go to Chevrolet.com. Mm-hmm. They have nice, easy to understand, simple names for websites. And that's all based off of the domain naming system or the domain yep. naming servers that we use. Because what those do is when you put in Chevrolet.com, that particular website or that particular server who's running that goes ahead and gives your computer the IP address. It's, it's like pulling up a phone book. Mm-hmm. I don't know someone's telephone number, but I know Josh's first and last name. I can figure out what that telephone number is. Yep. It's much easier to remember your name than it is to remember your telephone number. The problem here is that hackers, um, a while back, last year, they were putting out a Trojan, a malicious piece of code, called the DNS Changer Trojan. And what it was going is it was going out to millions of computers. I mean, alone, they were in over 100 countries, and there was half a million people infected just in the U.S. alone. But it was going to everyone's computers, and it was changing the IP address of the computer's DNS server. Okay. So instead of me contacting my local Comcast or Time Warner or Frontier server, they were pointing to one of their own servers. So all the traffic that I was asking how to get there was going to these, these corrupted servers. Now, what they wanted to do with them, you know, people could speculate. But the point is, this was happening in Estonia, you know, because Estonia is a happening place. (laughs) And so six men were apprehended. And what happened was, is the FBI looked at these servers. And so all these people in the U.S., I mean, at this point, 500,000 people in the U.S. were all pointing to that particular Mm -hmm. computers that were in question. And so the FBI were going to shut them down. But that would have meant that a half a million people couldn't get on the Internet anymore. That's correct. I mean, because no one communicates via typing an IP address. They always expect to use DNS. Exactly. So what the FBI planned to do was they were going to go ahead and take those servers down and instead put in legitimate servers that were still pointing to that area. And this particular article mentions where to look and where to go. Uh, we'll also post up the PDF that the FBI offers that allows you to go and look in your own personal system to see if by chance your machine did get infected by this Trojan virus and when it would have been infected it would have changed your uh, DNS server so you could go back to being correctly set at your own local DNS not to one of these uh, rogue ones that we had out here. So technically when the FBI brings them down it We'll kind of be turning off the internet for a lot of people out there if they haven't resolved this, but it sounds much more doomsday-like than what it what it said here. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't heard more about that. So yeah, I mean, when I this actually came from a website called the Hackers News, Um, and so at first I was surprised, but there's there's a PDF with instructions that's straight from the FBI website. It sounds legit. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that I'm very surprised. This with regards to the doomsday stuff, this would mm-hmm. sound somewhat on par with Y2K. When you have a half a million people in the U.S. being affected, you think you would have at least heard a blur yeah. of it on the yeah. nightly news or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but it was news to me. Yeah. So those are our articles for this week. Hope you enjoyed those. Uh, I want to remind everybody here just up front before we get into the interview that anytime you have any questions or you might have an article you think would be great for us to talk about on here, Feel free to Twitter us at TalkOnTechMCTC. But now at this point, we're going to go ahead and talk to Dr. Jones about our GIS program as well as our MIS program.
Okay, today sitting with me is uh, Dr. Randall Jones. He is our program chair over our information technology area, and he's going to discuss with us today one of our options we have that's the GIS option, as well as the management information systems class. So, Dr. Jones, if you would tell us a little bit about what exactly is even GIS. <laughs> okay, well, uh, GIS, let's. Uh, step back just a little bit the name of the program itself is called geospatial science and technology and today a lot of people are familiar with uh, the term GIS which stands for geographic information systems but it's only a small part of the technology that's incorporated in this particular program just to kind of give you an idea of uh, reference uh, if we think about it uh, above our earth right now 12,600 miles above the earth there are 24 satellites used to pinpoint locations on the earth's surface well that's part of a global positioning system and that's an element within this particular program uh, that we're talking about it's like google maps you can look it's at stuff like so. it's like google maps and when you think about uh, people's understanding of what gis gps is they think of the uh, car navigation system in which they have right uh, Global positioning, that's what that is. Geographic information systems, if you think about it, also above the Earth's surface, there are orbiting satellites that are constantly taking images of the Earth's surface. There are airplanes that are flying, taking aerial photographs. And so there is uh, an area in which we are developing images. And with the GIS, geographic information system, we are actually processing those images. Just to give you an idea of how these elements are all used today, and really there's a third element too, which is called remote sensing. Notice we're not touching anything. These are all uh, the pictures the, uh, are being taken remotely above the Earth's surface. Mm -hmm. To give you an idea of how these technologies are being applied today, the 9-11 operator is using this information to locate you. Uh, the CDC is using this information to track disease outbreaks. Uh, a major retail business is using GIS, GPS to determine where the next store is to be built. Traffic patterns are being monitored and adjusted. Law enforcement is using GIS to track crimes, correlate criminal statistics, and predict future crime probabilities in certain areas. Utility companies are using it to design and monitor their infrastructure. City governments are using it in urban planning. You know, they can take uh, a satellite image of uh, what the city was like 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and if they were to take one today, they could actually see the patterns of growth and, and, and uh, urban need uh, for city services. So city governments are using it as well for planning and tax assessment. The delivery and location of your package is being tracked in near real time, hmm. and we see these technologies being put into existence today. It's even gotten to the point to where parents can monitor their children's location and so on. So geospatial technology, which combines GIS, GPS, and uh, remote sensing, touches every aspect of our daily lives, and it's going to impact us tremendously in the future. Its impact on us is only destined to grow. Okay. Like I said, a lot, a lot of the stuff you were thinking about, I was thinking about how a lot of our census data you know, probably everything I say about where I live, my per capita income, all that, they can just superimpose that right over a map, and that's how you were saying they could go ahead and figure out crime rates based on statistics and all that stuff, too. So that's that's very interesting. So if you get a job in that, you could be a consultant for a lot of different areas. You could be a consultant for the government, 
for a marketing firm so Walmart can figure out where they want to build. You could be uh, designing your own software to make sure the parents can keep track of their kids. There's a there's not many areas of, of, of industry you can't go into. It would be like saying the computer is only designed to do word processing. Uh, when the computer came on the scenes, we had no idea what how what applications it would be applied to in the future, mm-hmm. and we are still discovering today how GIS geospatial applications can be applied to the real world. Uh, as far as uh, the jobs that are out there, those jobs are being created today. However. The U.S. Department of Labor recently identified this as one of the uh, areas of growing importance, the geospatial-based industry, and uh, it looked at uh, programs that of new technology that were coming down the pipelines, and the only other two technologies that were going to grow faster than this were nanotechnology and biotechnology, so it is a very high-growth field opportunity. Great. So tell us a little bit about our actual option that we have here at, at uh, Mount West and, and how what classes, I guess, a student will be taking that will prepare them to be able to have a career in this particular field. Well, really, there are. we have taken a program, and it, it pulls from various other avenues. For instance, every program that we offer requires general studies. Yes. You're going to require the English and the math. This particular program is very technology-oriented, and uh, there are four basic GIS courses. One of the first courses is more or less a course in in which one uses the technology, such as the software out there by a company called Esri, or it could be another company called ERMapper or Adrizi. One of those companies that utilize the software product that allows you to manipulate images and uh, do image processing and so on. Okay. Uh, so we have the intro course. We also, beyond that, we actually have a course called G- Concepts in uh, uh, GIS Concepts, Spatial Analysis, and 3D Modeling. Okay. In this course, you're actually starting to apply the knowledge that you learned in, in the first uh, semester, which was primarily learning to use the software and understanding how it works. Now, the first now, semester, is that 160? Is that IT-160? That is IT-160, and okay. IT-165 is the uh, second oh, okay. concept, spatial okay. analysis. Okay. And in this particular course, what you are actually doing is you're, you're solving real-world problems. For instance, uh, if you were to say uh, uh, you had a company that wanted to put a uh, ski uh, operation in West Virginia. Well, okay. there's a lot of factors that go into that. You would have to determine things like slope of the land, uh, the sun's uh, shadow uh, uh, on the uh, terrain, right. uh, the distance from the nearest urban population, are there mm-hmm. roadway that, roadways that allow access? Well, when you start thinking spatial analysis, you start bringing all these factors into the equation in order to determine the best place in which to uh, place that ski slope. And so these are some of the things that are addressed in a hands-on application-oriented fashion in the second course. Okay. Now the third course, uh, it actually, it's referred to as IT-260 and it's integration of GIS and remote RS systems or remote sensing systems. Mm -hmm. Its purpose is to actually, we talked about these different software products. Mm -hmm. Some will do certain things better than others. And so what we're doing is we're taking different software products such as 
products that process images very well, identify the patterns within the images and so on. It may be one product, but you have to process the image with that product but integrate its results into another product for processing for analysis or something of this nature. So that's kind of a, a course in which you're going to be using a lot of different uh, software related to GIS remote sensing and image processing. I guess it's kind of similar to if, if you're writing a report, you think you want to write it in Word. A lot of times though, if you want to put in a really nice table, you need to move over to Excel to make that and then you integrate that into your Word document. So here you've got different programs that have to interoperate to, to, to analyze your data. Correct. It's sort of like uh, certain uh, products are designed better to work with it with certain applications like Mac computers have always worked with uh, uh, graphics design. That's sort of what they were designed for. So it's kind of that same relationship there. Now the, fir the fourth course that we offer, and uh, we have modified the program so new students coming in are going to have to take four courses mm -hmm. in uh, network administration. Okay. The reason for that, in the, fourth, uh, in the fourth semester, there is a course called Image Web Server Development because we're dealing with graphic images here. And so that particular course is designed to set up and utilize uh, an image web server. So the network administration courses directly precede that and support that need for for training yeah and those are my first four microsoft courses that we've talked about previously and actually in the first podcast the the third class out of that focuses very heavily on microsoft's implementation of a web server which is iis so that tailors directly into that making sure the students have that experience so i can see why you have that in there well, probably one final thing I need to point out about this program. Mm -hmm. It's not your typical. It requires a very competent student. Uh, it deal, there's substantial challenge in uh, working in these, uh, with these software products. Uh -huh. uh, I would say an above average knowledge of computer and information science as well as the ability to spend uh, your career from this point forward in learning new things, continuous learning. These are going to become char uh, critical characteristics of the student that desires to enter this program. But here at Mount West Community and Technical College, we are going to give you that foundation that you need to be successful in this particular career. Yeah, because the biggest thing right now is this is this is still very much an emerging technology. I mean, they're finding more and more uses for it. So the student, well, all of our IT students, I think, understand that that IT changes from day to day. We're not math majors, and two plus two hasn't hasn't been the same for 500 years. Like Microsoft Office can't say the same for three for three years. So, but they need to definitely be ready to be flexible and continue on learning. I can honestly say you are probably learning skills to prepare you for jobs that have not been created yet. Well, great. And uh, another class, one of the main classes that you teach that's, um, that is kind of a capstone, happens in your fourth semester for us, is uh, the Management Information Systems class, the IT277 class, I believe. That's, that's also an area when students hear Management Information Systems it may not really clue them in at all to what we're talking about because it sounds like a vague term. So if you would, I'd, I'd appreciate it if you explain uh, kind of what takes place in that class and what's the purpose of that class. Okay. 
Uh, I can tell you the title of the class is Management Information Systems, uh -huh. and I've been in this field for, that was my first degree, uh, probably 20, 25 years ago. Uh, the technology, the focus of the course has changed dramatically, and that's simply because of what our world is dealing with today. Before, we think about the, the term itself, Management Information Systems, uh -huh. and that indeed was what it used to be about. It used to be about dealing with those five elements uh, managing information, dealing with those five elements that we all deal with, which which are hardware, uh, software, data, procedures, and people, and we have to deal with all of those elements in our, our information realm that we deal with, but there are a lot of elements that have uh, we are exposed to, to today that go beyond that. For instance, the way the course generally starts out, it starts out with, uh, and we move pretty fast because we feel that a lot of the students have learned the knowledge of the first probably third of the book in previous classes. Okay. You know, they know about hardware. They know about software. They know about the need for data security. Mm -hmm. So they understand all of these things. We probably tend to start to shift a little bit when we talk about issues related to uh, uh, some security from the standpoint of uh, focusing on physical backups, uh, uh, hot sites, cold sites, just terms that relate to uh, how we have to deal with protecting our data today. Yes. Uh, and of course we deal into, move into areas such as uh, legal, ethical uh, areas that we have to deal with. And that's, that's pretty important today mm -hmm. uh, because uh, if you're going to create a crime, if you're going to create a white collar crime, it's very easy to do it electronically uh, instead of utilizing a gun. Right. So whether we're protecting information resources, uh, you know, that's important. Now, something that has come into play uh, today is the actual uh, getting the information to the people that need the information in the form they need it, when they need it, you know, such as in a timely and accurate fashion. So that's starting to give you an idea of, of the direction that the uh, uh, course is going in. Now, and we with, also, by, by that, do you mean like, like if Walmart wanted to know their on-hand inventory, something like that, like that type of information? Well, As yes. An example? Yes. Uh, immediate information, and of course, when we're dealing with information, it's the processing of data. And, uh -huh. and uh, I don't think I've used the term here, but uh, data is, is very critical to an organization. What an organization will do many times is they will create, basically, uh, they will warehouse the data. They will create what's called oh, yeah. a data warehouse. Mm -hmm. And the data will be basically uh, cleaned up. Uh, uh, massaged and basically stored and mm -hmm. from that point it can be uh, accessed by any department it could be accessed by an executive that would need a certain information in a certain format for instance if you're a, a CEO or something you're going to be interested in summarized data you, mm -hmm. you don't want to know necessarily how many widgets were produced in the last eight hours but you're going to be interested in what's the trend of our company what's uh, what's happening with our sales in a particular geographic area or something like that okay well there are systems in place at this point in time that allows a student to, or a taught a student that allows an employer mm -hmm. or an employee to sit down at a console and basically query that uh, data warehouse and, and pull out the information they need to make uh, more uh, accurate uh, decisions okay. in their in their work environment. Okay. Now, what has happened today has come about, and what makes things more complex is that we are no longer dealing with 
just a uh, an enclosed uh, uh, environment within a company physical walls itself what has actually happened is the company boundaries have expanded into a global environment uh, because of the internet the intranets the uh, uh, the, the global communication network in which we deal with, mm -hmm. uh, we now have all kinds of issues that we have to relate to. The securities are no longer isolated to a particular environment. They are now, uh, you know, our market is no longer, uh, you know, it used to be in, in, in retail, uh, location, location, location. Well, now right. your location is the world. It's a global environment. Mm -hmm. And so all of the issues that you have to deal with in a global environment uh, uh, are, are brought into play. What may be legal here in the U.S. in, uh, you know, for instance, uh, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, you know, right. if you tried to display that through a web page or something of that nature in Saudi Arabia, uh, they would frown upon that tremendously. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, very much. Uh, I was in China a few years ago, and, uh, you know, we think about YouTube and all of the benefits that it offers, the online training and podcasting, such as what we're doing here. Uh, in that particular society, I could not access YouTube from that country. So there are a lot of things that are happening within a, a global environment that we now have to deal with in, in processing of information. E-commerce, you know, uh, the company is now, if I were a student at this point in time uh, and I wanted to be very wealthy, you've got, you've got three ways to be wealthy. You can, you can be born wealthy, you can marry wealth or you can make your own wealth then probably the way in which i would do it today would be to establish an online business because today the the world is actually your marketplace and you may have a a, a product that uh, you know may maybe in huntington west virginia there are only a hundred people that have access or need for that product okay. but around the world there's uh, you know a million people <coughs> So, e-commerce, we talk about that, and, mm -hmm. and we talk about, remember I mentioned to get the information that you need to the party uh, when they need it in the format and form in which they need it. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of things that are taking place to support this. Uh, we talk about decision support systems. We talk about uh, enterpri enterprise resource planning, enterprise information systems the customer themselves. We're, we're in an entirely different world today than when I first started dealing with uh, management information systems. Uh, we've got software, decision support systems that will actually, uh, why hire someone at the bank that's going to approve your loan when you can have a, a software product that will basically do that, that will check your income, that will check the, uh, where you work, your, your history and things of this nature and we'll say there's a uh, 92 cent percent probability that this person's going to repay their loan over the next uh, uh, 15 years or whatever. Okay. So there's a lot of uh, support systems out there that we talk about. Okay. Uh, one of the things about this course uh, is the fact that much of our training is focused in a particular area. What I see this course doing is opening the vision of the or the eyes of the student to uh, a bigger, broader environment of how the technology is being applied. You know, s sometimes they may be just focusing on network development, and so they're focusing on routers and switches. Well, there's a bigger world out there that's being impacted, and if you're uh, going to be a manager, a supervisor, 
of uh, information systems, then you have to understand, yes, the networking, but then you have to understand all of the other business uh, needs. ramifications yeah. and needs. So you have to understand the technology, but you have to understand the business operation as well and what the needs are. So okay. that's sort of what we do. Open up the world somewhat to the student as far as how the technology that they're learning about is being applied in the real world business environment. Okay, so we kind of go from the not how do you do it, but then why would you do it at this business? Why, why would you do it? And also, as we wrap up this particular class, uh, we're, all, we're all exposed to technology, and we all realize that we're going, our training and our education is, from this point forward, constant. Uh, so even the last thing we do in the course is we start to examine what are the trends out there? What, what uh, are the emerging trends, the emerging technologies, and how are they going to impact uh, you know, our lives, uh, whether it's in as a technician or whether it's going to be as a manager or supervisor or business owner? Well, I just want to remind everyone here, um, if at any point you're, you're wondering about the options that we're talking about, you can always go to our website, which is mctc.edu. And up on the menu, there's an option for programs of study, and you can go and look at the two-year program for GIS, and um, and maybe even come here and decide to take the uh, the MIS class. So hopefully that gives you some more understanding about what GIS is all about and what a possible MIS class would be. So even if you're not here in the Huntington, West Virginia area, or maybe you're in California you still might be interested in, in going to your local community college or university or college to possibly take a course in management information systems. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Jones, for explaining those, uh, those courses to us. So I hope that enlightened you some because originally I did not know what GIS or MIS was really. I mean, I'd heard yeah. the vague terms, management information systems, what was that? So I think Dr. Jones did a really good job of yeah. allowing me to understand what it was all about. So as a quick reminder, like I said before the interview, if you got any questions, feedback, concerns, let us know at Twitter on Talk on Tech, MCTC. But for this week, I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a great week.